take our Bibles, turn over to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're in our study and we're going to be going through this for a while now. The book of 1 Timothy on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> we're going to read the first four verses tonight and we'll go from there. All right, let's begin reading. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went unto Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. In our introduction lesson or message, we learned about Timothy and his upbringing. And um, we learned how he was raised by a Gentile father and a faithful Christian mother and grandmother. We noted how he was also influenced by the ministry of Paul early on in his life. And eventually he'd go on to be mentored by this particular man of God. What a privilege it was to be a part of his life the Apostle Paul's, to be influenced by one that traveled so much, that was so learned and had met with Christ and truly was such a vital instrument in the hand of God. And so Timothy took full, uh, he, he, he truly took full advantage of that. And as we see, he made it a pretty big splash of his own in the New Testament. Now, Timothy would become one of the Apostle Paul's closest co-laborers. And matter of fact, he'd be called his son in the faith. And we uh, know that the endearing term that was used there is uh, that meaning like an actual born son, someone from his own body, someone that he had, his own personal children, flesh and blood. And so there was a tremendous relationship there between the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Tonight, we're going to begin our study in 1 Timothy now. The book's divided into two major sections or divisions. 
One, how to build an effective church. And two, how to become an effective Christian. Well, this evening, of course, we're going to talk about how to build an effective church. And in the process of that, we're going to divide that into three subsections. We're going to note the church and its doctrine. We're going to consider the church and its devotion and the church and its duty. Now, in each of those, there'll be subdivisions as well. So tonight, I want to note the church and its doctrine as it relates to building an effective church, okay? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin tonight. Father, tonight, I want to thank you for the privilege of gathering in your house. Lord, it's so important that we are um, saturated with your word, that, Father, we are uh, truly filled with your spirit, that we're given opportunity, Father, to glean and to grow as you would have us. Father, tonight, what an opportunity it is to be here. Now, Father, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be in tune with you, that, Father, you would both speak and we would both listen, that, Father, the word of God would go forth mightily. You said that your word would not return void. So, Father, as it goes forth, may it do the work that, Father, you intended to do. Now, bless us tonight. May we learn something that will better us in our ability to reach others, to live the life, to be the testimony and witness that you'd have us to be. We thank you, Father, for your love and grace. And we know we're so unworthy of it. We thank you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen. As we start the church and its doctrines, we begin to look at that. We're going to consider the loss of truth. The loss of truth considered. I mean, in the verse verses of this particular chapter, verse 3, it says, And I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. We're going to see that Timothy's residence. We're going to see where he's living, what's going on in his life a little bit. Paul made Ephesus a major site of his evangelistic outreach. I mean, if Ephesus was a major part of his ministry, as a matter of fact, um, the third missionary journey was was, was a tremendous uh, portion of that uh, journey was spent with Ephesus. And um, while he was there, he's thrown out of the synagogue. He, he then begins to concentrate and focus his energies on the Gentiles. And he spends about the next two years reaching out to Gentiles. And um, during that course of time, a tremendous revival breaks out. I mean, God is blessing. There's, uh, I mean, he's just moving in miraculous ways. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 20, we, we read uh, what took place. It says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So there were apostolic signs. There were wonders. There was just a miraculous moving of the Holy Spirit. And there were these, these just uh, the word of God grew. That means souls were being saved. Lives were being transformed and changed. All of that as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul there in Ephesus. But in the end, Demetrius and the silversmith union got a little upset with the Apostle Paul. They're upset with Paul because, you know, there's this temple of Diana. And, of course, Diana is a goddess. And, boy, she is worshipped by the, uh, the Ephesians. Well, they make these little gods of, of Diana. Well, so many people were being saved. So many lives were being changed. Uh, the uh, sales of little idols of Diana dropped off pretty significantly. Uh, they weren't selling as many as they were. So like we say here in the passage, we're told that Demetrius, not in this passage, but in others, that Demetrius and those silversmiths got pretty upset with the Apostle Paul. They kind of instigated a citywide riot 
against both Paul and the believers in the city. Well, <clears throat> Paul would ultimately leave Ephesus. And uh, he would uh, move along, but his heart was still knit very closely with Ephesus. And, and we would see that it always would be. But um, on his way to Jerusalem, he then meets with some of the Ephesian elders. And he begins to encourage them to stick to the stuff, to stay faithful, not to quit, not to give in, to continue in his evangelistic outreach, to, to maintain what he began. Now, there's one area that churches are struggling in today. It's in that area of evangelistic outreach. Okay, even as the Apostle Paul, when he arrived there in Ephesus, was gung-ho, fired up, he was going after souls, and God was supernaturally blessing and mightily fulfilling the will of God in and through his life. The truth is, is that, that often churches begin that way. But then as time goes, they have a tendency to kind of lose their soul-winning zeal. They kind of lose their, their desire to reach the world with the gospel. But when Paul met, uh, what met these, these elders at Miletus and he urged them to continue the work that he had begun, they took it, I mean, seriously. And they went back to Ephesus. And before it was over with, we're going to see that, that um, a number of other communities had churches springing up in them as a direct result of the outreach of these Ephesians. For instance, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, and even Hierapolis. There you go, Hierapolis. There you go. But anyway, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, doesn't it? But anyway, nonetheless, they took it seriously. Now, I just want to encourage Community Baptist Temple. Let's take seriously the real reason we exist. Let's not lose sight of the fact that it's not about going on an activity for, uh, tomorrow for the, uh, the young at hearts. It's not about a singles conference so that we can get together and meet other singles. That's not why we function. That's not our purpose here. Our real purpose is to reach out to a community, to a world that is lost without Jesus Christ, that's on its way to hell, and it will burn forever and ever and ever and ever unless we make our way into the community and knock on them doors and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason we exist, not just to get together and fellowship and talk about the good time we had singing praises to the Lord, but we are praising God, we are being edified by Christ, we are growing in Christ for the direct, for the, the, the explicit reason to go out and carry it to other people that don't have it. And you know what? The moment our soul winning dies, as it's starting to die at Community Baptist Temple, then we're going to see the church die because the lifeblood is in souls. It's not in a Sunday school class. It's found out in the streets and in the highways and hedges compelling them to come in. And that's exactly what was going on in the church at Ephesus early on. But we're going to find that there were some entities at, 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 at work trying to discourage the brethren, ultimately trying to distract the brethren and ultimately keep them from accomplishing what God had called them to do. Now... After being released from his first imprisonment, Paul wanted to return to Ephesus. But as he found, he was unable to. He had other res responsibilities. He had some, other some things that he had to take care of and deal with. I don't know what they were. I don't think anybody really knows what they were. But what we do know is it is at that point that he ultimately commissions Timothy and asks Timothy to go in his stead to Ephesus, where then Timothy would ultimately pastor that great church there in that city. So we see Timothy's residence. He's now in Ephesus. But we know Timothy's responsibility now. His responsibility. His responsibility was to require sound doctrine. 
One of the things that he was asked to do, according to the Apostle Paul, in verse 3, is, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went unto Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That they teach no other doctrine. Again, we're not sure what Paul the Apostle heard or how he heard it. I'm not sure that he might have received a text. Maybe he got an email. I don't know if he got a phone call. I'm not sure if it was just an old-fashioned letter. But whatever way, however it was, we know that one thing for sure, he was concerned for Ephesus and the people there. Paul, before he... Now, this is, this is before his second epistle to Timothy. Before he writes his second epistle to Timothy, he will go on to name, name five men who would depart from the faith. Now listen, that, that's, <clears throat> that's big time. So between the time he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, by the time he writes 2 Timothy, he will by name list five men who have departed from the faith. Those five men are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Take your Bible, look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 19 and 20. You say, well, that's not before, that's not uh, before first, Second Timothy. Uh, it's, well, it's before, and it's before he finished writing Second Timothy, so it's included. <clears throat> no changes. Okay, so First Timothy 1, 19 through 20. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Isn't that something? Just think for, for a moment with me of a shipwreck for just a moment. A, 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 an ocean liner... <clears throat> like the Titanic or some other, out on the ocean, shipwrecked. Maybe a big storm comes along and the, it, it's battered against the sides of a, a, of a cliff or something and it's just shredded by the rocks below. A shipwreck. That's exactly the image and the picture of one, according to the Word of God, who has put away faith. They're shipwrecked. Of whom is, watch now, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, I have watched this now, be, watch closely, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He said, boy, I don't like uh, naming names. Paul did. Right, Paul named them and shamed them. That's what Brother Moon would say. He named them and shamed them. <laughs> that actually sounds a little like him. That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> now, again, Paul doesn't do this for the express purpose of hurting someone. He's doing this to help someone. Remember, the church at Ephesus was his baby. He had birthed this church. He loved this church. Let me ask you something. If you had a, if you had a child in your home and they started connecting up with a person, a boy or a girl that was not the kind of boy or girl that would lead them in the right direction. Let me ask you, as a parent, would you go to them and say, hey, I don't want you hanging around so-and-so. I'm concerned. You end up shipwrecked. You wouldn't go up and go, I just want you to understand, I want you to be careful hanging around people. No, you'd be honest and say, I don't want you hanging around that bum right there. Oh, I'm not, not this bum, that one. 
and you'd name names. Now, again, now, now let me tell you something. That's what Paul's doing now. Paul's not doing this to try to somehow get some shock value. He's not doing this because he's trying to somehow earn kudos with, you know, the, the, the Baptist Association or be considered one of the top dogs in, you know, uh, real hard preaching. No, he's just doing this because he loves those people and he doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want to be led astray. Also, notice in 2 Timothy now 1.15, he's going to name two others now. Along the way now, again, between the time of, you know, by the time 2 Timothy is completed, he will have named five people who will have departed from the faith. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy 1.15, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. I mean, these are two more men now. Then also in 2 Timothy 2.17. And their word will eat as doth a canker. I don't know. I don't, you, know you don't even have to know what that is. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? That doesn't sound good. But anyway, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. Okay, so here these five men are. And he names them. So, so what we understand then is that there was obviously a real problem that had arisen with false doctrine. And it was beginning to affect more and more people. And you know, false teaching or doctrine is like any cancer left untreated. It simply spreads. It has to be addressed. It has to be treated. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 1, 5, 15, notice it says, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. So we know that it's spreading. We know there's a problem here. Who knows? Even in Ephesus now, it has reached Ephesus. It's affecting the church. It's affecting the leadership even. So we know that this false doctrine has taken root now. And it's... Made, it, it's even more clear now to us that what we believe is very vital then. So vital is sound doctrine in your life and in mine that the early church cut its teeth on doctrine. Take your Bible, look over at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> right out of the gate, I don't know how many of you watch horse racing. I don't usually bet too much, so it's not a problem for me. Well, wasn't that a great race, though, if you watched it? Triple crown winner. Isn't that amazing? You say, that's no big deal to me. I like football and basketball. Man, I, I, was, I would watch the horse race. I, I, I like horse races. If, if, I was, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd gamble on horse races. I really would. I would. My flesh would love to do that. But I won't do that because it's not right to do. It's not right to play lottery either. I just thought I'd throw that one in. Just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, as, as brother, uh, what's his name? I'm going to toss a grenade under some folding chairs right there. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> um, 
The Bible says in Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice the early church now. The day of Pentecost has just transpired. 3,000 souls have come to Christ. And the Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Notice right off the bat, right at the forefront of this list is doctrine. May I say that without doctrine, we are a ship being tossed about to and fro with every wind. And you know, sometimes in the church, if we're not careful, we, we kind of come to the conclusion that as long as we are busy in service, then we're good to go and we are quite spiritual. The problem is, is if you're not grounded and rooted in doctrine, if you don't understand doctrine, if you can't point to scriptures in the Word of God of the, 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 you know, the resurrected Christ and eternal salvation and, and grace by faith and some basic fundamental doctrines, if you can't grab hold of those, if you can't embrace them and you can't direct others to them, then you know what? You're really very shallow in your Christianity. And you are one step away from going off the deep end and being shipwrecked. Now, again, I, I understand someone says, I've been in church 20 years. I, I couldn't point you to one scripture in my Bible, but I know all the truths. My friend, you are fooling yourself because someone else can come along and show you a couple of things and convince you of that too then. Because if it's not the Word of God and the Spirit of God that has rooted and grounded those truths in your heart, if it's just a preacher and his messages, or it's a Sunday school teacher standing in front telling you it's wrong to do this or wrong to do that or right to do this or right to do that, then when someone else comes along and says, I don't think they were as right, and I'll show you why I think they're not right and why they were wrong, and you'll say, well, you know, that makes sense to me. But if you got God's Word on it, and it's hidden in your heart, and you can point to it and go back and look at it, you'll be grounded, rooted, strong. The early church, when they came to Jerusalem, 3,000 were saved. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that they came, as we know, from all different countries, all different backgrounds. Tongues were used for a reason. It wasn't just to show that the Holy Spirit had showed up. It was there because there were people that heard in their own languages. People heard in their own languages. They didn't hear in some heavenly tongue. They heard in their own languages. You know what they're telling me? Those were, those were people from all different nationalities, all different groups, it sounds like to me. And when they gathered there in Jerusalem for that particular day, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit showed up, man, they got saved. But you know what they did? They stayed in Jerusalem. And they got grounded in the truth. They didn't just go immediately back to their homes. They remained. That's why the rich were meeting the needs of the poor. Because those people remained in Jerusalem. And they were living in certain people's homes. For instance, can you imagine if 500 people came to Akron today, got saved in a service here, and they were from out of town, and they had nowhere, and they knew nothing about the Word of God? Let me ask you, how many would you take in your home? So that they could be grounded in the Word before you send them back to nothing. How many would you put in your home? Oh, that'd be a total... I, I couldn't do that, man. There's no way in the world I'd take anybody in my house. I got... I got, I got you know, that's just ridiculous. I, first of all, I couldn't afford to put somebody up. Second, I'd be afraid... You know, they'd probably be a mass murderer. And I, and I, we come up with every excuse in the book. Let me tell you what. The early church could have done the same thing. But they didn't. And what was their main emphasis? Doctrine. Doctrine. Not, not just fellowship. 
Doctrine first. Your fellowship is based on doctrine. That's, that's a problem in the church today. We don't, we don't, we're not ecclesiastically separated even. What do I mean by that? We, we don't even believe the same things in the Bible and we'll sit there and still fellowship as churches. Let me tell you something. If somebody doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, I don't want nothing to do with their church. This, no, nobody in this church needs to fellowship with that. We're not going to get together with that group. That if, if a church doesn't teach eternal, eternal life, According to the word of God, listen, we're going to separate ourselves. They'll do what they do, we'll do what we do. But we're not going to enter in with them and have our young people hanging out with them and our young people ultimately going, you know what? That's a nice group over there. They don't believe you're saved forever. So you know what? They're, they're probably just as right as we are because they're good folk and they are good folk. But you better learn to be ecclesiastic separated. You better understand what that separation is based on. It's not based on your personal preference. Preference. It's not based on your upbringing. It's not based on the church you grew up in. It ought to be based on this book, the Word of God. And if you can see it in Scripture in black and white, then there's a reason to draw some lines in the sand. <clears throat> and that's exactly what was going on. They were making a big deal of doctrine, and yet there were false teachers amongst them. <clears throat> you and I can't afford to be misinformed regarding truth. You can't afford to. Uh, again, the story is told of a woman who um, had her child with her. They were traveling on a train across the prairies in sub-zero weather. And uh, the woman, she was really anxious and always looking out the window. She was worried that she was going to miss her stop. And the conductor assured her. He said, listen, ma'am, I, I, I'm telling you, uh, I will make sure you get off at the right stop. She was just so concerned, so worried she'd miss her stop. And even a fellow traveler, a salesman that was just always traveling on the train, knew the, the route in and out. He said, listen, I travel this line frequently. I, 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 listen, ma'am, I, I can tell you every station, every whistle stop, if the conductor forgets, if he forgets, I'll make sure you get off at the right place. Don't worry. Please, ma'am, don't worry. Well, as soon as the salesman said... <clears throat> Uh, it wasn't too long, I should say, afterwards that the salesman said, Hey, excuse me, ma'am, uh, yours is the next stop. Yours, yours will be the next stop. You might want to start getting ready. And it wasn't very long after that the train came to a halt and there was no sign of the conductor anywhere. He never showed up. And the salesman said, Ma'am, this is where you get off. I'll help you get your bags. And so he helped her. He gathered her bags up and, 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 and she took her child and he helped her out the door and on onto the outside there. And it was really dark. It was snowing, you know, really hard and there was nobody in sight. And the fellow passenger that uh, he, he assured her, listen, don't be afraid, ma'am. I'm telling you, I'm sure they heard the train whistle. They'll be along in just a minute. This, this has to be your stop. He climbed back on board as the train pulled away. And it was quite a while later that the conductor came through the car. And he said, hey, where's that lady with that child? He said, well, I helped her off at the last stop. I mean, that was her stop and you just weren't there to help and you didn't let her know. So I helped her off the, off the, off the train. He said, that wasn't her stop. That wasn't her station. We were held up by a signal. There were no houses for miles around where she got off. Went and talked to the engineer. They put the train in reverse, went backwards, got back to that location where they dropped that woman and her child off. They found her frozen. <clears throat> People who teach false doctrine 
are as dangerous as that salesman. And people who listen to them are in great danger as well. See, it's important, according to Paul, for Timothy to put a stop to the spread of false doctrine. Now, again, the salesman, think about the salesman for a moment, would you? He was sincere. The salesman was extremely sincere. He had traveled that railway up and down time after time. But for some reason, there was a particular signal that stopped the train. They had to come to a halt. So instead of stopping where it would have normally stopped, it stopped early. Oh, he was extremely sincere. Extremely. And yet, he was extremely wrong. The woman, on the other hand, she was concerned and careful. She was constantly looking out the window. She was worried that she had missed her stop. She took every precaution to end up at the right place. And yet, her outcome? Tragic. I don't care how sincere someone is that's telling you something. If it doesn't come right from this book, you better be careful heeding it. Because you could end up in a tragic spot too. I don't care if they wear a tie, a suit. I don't care if they call themselves a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. I don't care who they are. They better have something to back up what they're teaching. It better not be their thought, their idea. It ought to be the authorities. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. She should have waited on the conductor. And if she'd have missed the stop, she'd missed the stop. But instead, she'd at least known she was getting off at the right place. And you know what? He's the conductor. Not a man, not a woman, not another person. And that's what Paul's trying to encourage Timothy. Now, not only was Timothy to... Excuse me, not only was Timothy's responsibility, I should say, to require sound doctrine, but he was to, and just humor me here a minute, to resist silly digressions. And that sounds crazy, but I had to keep the S's and the D's going. To... Resist silly digressions. In verse 4, the passage says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now, maybe in the future I'll, I'll address this, but because of time I'm going to move on. But in the early church, there were, what they were, called, there were a number of what was called Gnostics. Gnostics were an interesting group. They had their own belief system and... They did not believe like believers do, and yet often they believed themselves to be believers. <laughs> they were just uh, basically a sect that was very similar to Eastern religion, if you will. I mean, if you would look at an, a, a Gnostic, uh, the sad part is, is that they had some things really mixed up. I mean, they viewed matter itself, I'm talking about matter, as evil. Uh, they, they viewed man as having sparks of divinity within Isn't that interesting? We've heard that before, haven't we? They they viewed um, God as being transcendent, meaning distant from people, because God is so holy and perfect, and matter is evil, including the creation, us. God has to distance himself. Instead of being close to us, instead of being able to uh, truly commune and fellowship, he is distant. He's transcendent. They, They reject Jesus as God in flesh. And they deny his bodily death and his bodily resurrection. Those were Gnostics. Now, as we're going to see, Gnostics were part of the problem here. 
the doctrine of the Gnosticism was starting to creep into the church early on in the church history. It's amazing how similar Gnosticism is to Eastern religion and this New Age thinking that we now seem to kind of have so much of in our culture. So Paul goes on and he says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Now the word fables here is mutbas, which can be rendered hoary old myths. That's interesting. That's a nice sounding word. Hoary old myths. Well, Judistic or Judaistic Gnostics, Jews that were Gnostics, they like to dig up these old Jewish fables, legends, if you will. Kind of like um, the Apocrypha today. The Apocrypha can be found in a Catholic Bible. And they'll try to say it is the Word of God, but in reality, they're Jewish fables. They're Jewish fables. It's no more the Word of God than the man on the moon. You say, well, then why was it included in the original King James? Because King James was a man that wanted the approval of all, and he wanted everybody to use his Bible. So he went ahead and compromised on that and stuck it right in the center because he, didn't want to, he wanted to make sure he appealed to all groups. Hey, King James wasn't the kind of Christian. He wasn't even Christian, to our knowledge. He cared about people using his Bible, and God used him to create a Bible that for over 400 years has continued to remain consistent unchanged. Now, these fables, again, would be introduced to Gentiles. They thought they got a big kick out of introducing them to the Gentiles, who they thought to be extremely gullible concerning gospel truth. And if obviously they were, as we, we see here along the way. But then he also goes on to speak about genealogies. And again, it's kind of confusing, possibly, because neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And you'd say, well, there's all kind of genealogies in the Bible. I mean, how could, why would he say that those are bad then? And not to give heed to them. Well, there's a difference between the genealogies that he's talking about here in the passage than genealogies that are found in the Word of God. It doesn't refer to those concerning the family trees uh, of, of some of the patriarchs and so forth. That's not, again, what he's dealing with. Um, those have purpose and they're useful. Those particular genealogies reveal things, like they reveal the royal line, the Davidic line, the Messianic line. You follow it through the scriptures, and ultimately it connects the Old Testament from the New Testament, those genealogies do. So they serve a purpose, and they're, they're productive and positive. What he's speaking about, or the genealogies he's addressing, um, have, have to do with um, the Gnostics again. And the Gnostics were a group that they had this imaginary ranks of celestial beings. Now remember, they see God as so holy, right, that he can't address or deal with his creation. So he can't really even be too close to the creation even. Because he's so holy, therefore he couldn't have created something so bad. He can't be that close. He rubs up against it. It would be very, very upsetting. So they, they kind of create this rank of celestial beings that... Bridge the gap between God and man. Now, the invention that they had was this host of angelic beings. And, and they believed that they descended in rank, kind of stair-stepped, slowly approaching a point where one of them would be far enough from God 
that he would not defile God's holiness. And yet, close enough to be able to create all things. Those are the genealogies he's talking about. Made up, fabricated genealogies that are not biblical or scriptural in any way. We know that God created all things. But they believe that another being created that he, an angelic type creature. It's just crazy. They had some unusual, strange kind of beliefs. And yet, they had a lot of authority, if you will in the early church, and many of them caused a lot of problems. Paul commands Timothy now, pay no attention to that whole concept. Don't buy into it. View it as it really is. Utter foolishness. Total nonsense. And so Paul rejects these fables and endless genealogies as being fruitless. And why? Because they, as he says, invite questions. And oppose godly edifying. That's why he says we're to oppose them. Because they invite questions and oppose godly edifying. Paul's not saying you don't ask questions though. That's not the issue. Um, As a matter of fact, Paul understood that new converts would have a number of questions as well as seasoned veterans in the ministry. There will always be questions about the word of God and, and the things of God. So Paul's not objecting to legitimate questions. In fact, the portions of 1 Corinthians, if you look at 1 Corinthians, that that book, it deals with some very practical and theological questions that were posed to him by the Corinthians, and he addresses that in the book. So he's not opposed to questions. I mean, you think about the Lord himself at the great uh, Olivet Discourse. He's dealing with questions. He's, He's addressing that, responding to questions that the disciples had asked. So again, God, Paul, they're not opposed to real questions. What Paul's denouncing or what he's not happy with are the arrogant, pompous, and smug questions raised by those who trivialize the Word of God, feel themselves senior or superior to others or something in some manner. Let me give you some examples. When the Sadducees tried to trap the Lord Jesus Christ, Remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 29, they come to him and say, uh, the same day came to him Sadducees, which say that there was no resurrection and asked him saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. And he goes on to talk about these seven brothers and the one had the wife and then he died and then so the other brother had the wife and then he died and the other brother had the wife and he died and seven brothers had the same wife. Whose wife will she be in heaven? That's the kind of question they're asking. Jesus basically says to them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's very clear with them. Listen, what kind of question is that? You know, that was just a question to try to trap the Lord Jesus Christ. To kind of catch Him in His own words, if you will. Pilate was no better. He didn't even wait for an answer when he asked the question, What is truth? Over there in John 18, 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Listen, if I had Jesus Christ in front of me and I legitimately wanted answers and I said, Hey, what is truth? I'd have stood and waited for an answer instead of running right out the door doing what I'm going to do. The Athenians 
They're, they're making light of the truth when they summon Paul to Mars Hills. Remember Mars Hills, Math, uh, Acts chapter 17? Well, they're making fun of him ultimately. We know they weren't sincere. Oh, teach us something, Paul. Teach us something. They didn't really want taught. It's all a big game, a big show. Anyone who's been in the Lord's work for any length of time will have met people who come forward after a service to argue over a nonsensical time or matter. I've been there. I remember one time someone came up to me after a Sunday school lesson I taught, and they said, how come you don't use more scripture in your lesson? And I said, well, um, I normally do, although there, was, although there was scripture in my lesson today, there wasn't as much as there normally is. Before it was over with, they finally got honest enough to say what they really felt. And they basically said, you know what, you don't use enough scripture in your lessons. And I, you, you just are, you're not right with God. Yeah. Well, they weren't a member of the church anyway. And I said, well, there's the door. I said, there's the door. You're welcome to hit it. Don't ever come to me and say that again. If you want to come here, you're welcome. You can sit there and listen. But if all you have to do is criticize this man of God, he obviously can't be your pastor. There's the door. You say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Well, then you pastor and see how you like it. And by the way, if you don't think I can teach you anything, you probably need to find a pastor that you do trust to teach you. That's a reality, folks. You're wasting your time in a church if there's not a, if this pastor, you can't trust this pastor. You're wasting your time. You're wasting it. You might as well find somebody you can trust. Now, it wasn't the question that was wrong in and of itself. Hey, listen, I had no problem with that question. No problem at all. These young men come to me and say, Preacher, hey, listen, I've noticed you haven't been using much scripture lately, and I'm just kind of wondering why. I'd be like, Good question. But I knew the history of this particular person, I'd dealt with them for years, I knew where they were coming. And boy, by the end of it, and they made it very clear where they were coming. But those young men, if they asked me the same question, I'd be more than happy to sit down and discuss it. See, it's not the question. It's the attitude or motivation often. See, often questions are asked not to sincerely get answers, but to promote an agenda or rival an opposing opinion, uh, to raise an opposing opinion. Let me give you an example. The Young at Hearts have an activity tomorrow, Thursday, tomorrow. One can ask a question. Here's the question. Where are we going to lunch this Thursday for our activity? It's a good question, right? But let me, let me share it. Consider two reasons for asking now. <clears throat> Here are the two reasons. Let me, let me share the first one. Number one, they ask that question, where are we going to lunch this Thursday for our activity? They genuinely don't know where they're going, and they're searching for information that would benefit. Or here, let me give you the second one. They ask wanting a reason to express their dissatisfaction or their disagreement. I mean, when it all gets down to it, they don't stop with the question. They follow it up by saying, how come we always go there? Who decides anyway? I don't understand why we don't vote on it. There you go. That's the stupid questions that you're not supposed to have anything to do with as a pastor or as a leader. And the moment you catch on to that, you go, you know what, obviously... You know, that's where we're going. Sorry, I, there's nothing to discuss. Doesn't do any good to talk about this. Because, see, already they got an attitude. 
And already it's turning into foolishness and not godliness. You, you get where I'm going here? Now listen, you deal with that every day in your own life. You get that kind of stuff. And the Bible says Paul the Apostle was trying to encourage and help this young man in the ministry. And he's saying that kind of squabbling, that kind of bickering, that kind of issue where questions are asked for the purpose of trying to somehow get a dig in or somehow try to get a conversation started so you can express dissatisfaction, your disagreement with leadership and all that junk. He's saying, listen, that promotes nothing but godlessness. It serves no purpose in the Christian life. And Christian doctrine has no place for silly arguments put forth by carnal, worldly-minded people. That's what he's saying. So, Paul told Timothy to put a stop to pointless questions and speculations. Because they serve no purpose, especially in the area of doctrine. How many times do we have to teach or preach on the same issues? And someone still comes up and goes, Well, I don't understand why Jesus turned water into wine if he doesn't want us to drink liquor. How many times do we have to deal with that? I'm not talking about a new Christian. I'm not talking about somebody who just got saved. I'm talking about somebody who's been in church 20 years. How, how in the world are we still asking the same stupid questions that do not in any way help us get to an end point of godliness and reaching our world with the gospel? All they do is create friction and conflict. And then we end up wanting to share our views with others in the church and try to poison their minds against the leadership too and against the God of the Bible. So, that was fun, wasn't it? <clears throat> so we need to be very careful not to lose the truth. We must guard it and guarantee its safety, safe passage to the next generation. That's what we're seeing here with, the, with this particular young man, Timothy, as Paul, his mentor, shares with him the simple truths. And so, next week we'll pick up and we'll look a little bit deeper into this particular topics as we move along in the book of 1 Timothy. So, anyway, that's where we end tonight. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord.